As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and it's 19 wins and out for Max Verstappen as he caps his incredible season with victory in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. But the real battle's raged behind, with Mercedes beating Ferrari to second in the Constructors' Championship and Williams hanging on to seventh, despite Yuki Tsunoda's heroics. So how did Red Bull turn practice troubles into another easy win, and does P2 really matter for the Giants battling in its wake? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us for one last race review for 2023 are Scott Mitchell-Mahon and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, end of term for the race reviews on the F1 podcast. Bit of an end of term feel all round, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever um, sat through a more sort of sarcastic race build-up. There was just a, there was certain, there was a, should I just, I don't know how to, what word to use. There was a certain energy around the around the place. Um, pretty much all weekend, I think there's been a certain lethargy and fatigue, obviously coming off the back of Vegas. A lot of people that were there and came here were very, very tired, shall we say, and there's obviously not that much at stake, and this isn't the most exciting place to come for the season finale because you always have fairly low expectations for the race. Um, so, yeah, there was a fairly low energy, like I say, a little bit of sarcasm around the place in terms of the um, sort of faux enthusiasm we all had for the Grand Prix, but in the end, I thought the race was absolutely fine. Not one of the worst ones I've seen here. Yeah, there was plenty to talk about, which we'll get into shortly. And Mark Hughes, how did you find it? It's one of the one of the lower key season finales, I guess, but there's always something going on. Yeah, I mean, apart from 21, um, it's usually quite low key here, isn't it? And, and, and that was um, unusual circumstances that made that sort of come to life, wasn't it? And uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, there was nothing... <laughs> Nothing really unexpected happened, given given the, um, the the previous races that we've had um, the, and the previous eighteen victories that Max Verstappen has taken. So um, yeah, it's just really watching how he was going to get there this time, and watch what shape it was going to be, and what the story was going to be, and how the order was mixed up behind him um, with this shuffle of the of the cards. Well, the bottom line is we've had 21 race weekends before this. That's a pretty good sample set. So perhaps no surprise that it was relatively predictive for what we saw this weekend. But Mark, for the last time this season, tell us how the race was won, especially within the context of Red Bull, looking like they might be struggling a bit in practice. Yes. Um, talking to Christian Horner after the race, he was saying that actually they were never in as much trouble as it had looked in FP3 um, because they could see... Because as you, you, you probably know, um, the young drivers were in the car in FP1. They were obliged to run young drivers in both their cars because they, they, they hadn't run them um, earlier in the season. And so that lost both Verstappen and Perez uh, setup time because the young drivers don't do setup. They were just driving the car and doing aero rakes and that sort of thing. So then FP2 being so um, re reduced effectively to a 16-minute session because of the, the two red flags. Um, it meant that the, 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 the experiment that they were doing in FP3 with the setup, which just did not work at all, didn't concern them that much because they knew from the data that they'd gathered in FP1 from the young drivers that actually given the fuel loads and the, 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 what they estimated was the difference in the drivers, 
they were actually in pretty good solid shape and all I had to do was revert to the setup that they'd had in FP1 um, and it, they, were, they were duly fine. Uh, it was set up with a bit of understeer to protect the rear tyres so its advantage was a little bit you know marginal in qualifying and uh, Lando Norris in particular put, put them under a bit of pressure for pull um, and then had that moment uh, near the end of the qualifying lap but come the race day there was you know, as ever the Red Bull is a car that's been configured to um, look after its tyres you spread the load between the two two axles much more than any other car and the, the, its aero map is, is done in that way so it had a huge advantage actually and it was going to be a one-stop race and could comfortably have been a one-stop race it's just that once it, one or two drivers sort of pushed quite aggressively early on it pulled everybody else into a two-stop and so Red Bull just did the same thing and responded with a, a two-stop but they could actually have, have won it with a one-stop um, and that's just how it played out. It was a deceptive opening stint wasn't it the way that um, well the, the deceptive opening lap and then a deceptive uh, first stint because uh, Leclerc made it very interesting for the first few seconds and then Verstappen just swept around the outside and then Leclerc tried to make it interesting again halfway around the lap and Verstappen just swept around the outside and then I, I did wonder very, very briefly if we were just starting to see a repeat of Vegas where Leclerc came back at Verstappen and actually maybe the Ferrari was in really good nick. But then once you got past the first pit stops, once Verstappen had survived that opening stint, it was actually surprisingly plain sailing from there. Yeah, and I think um, the, the, the fact that Max had to be quite aggressive on that first lap to repel Leclerc probably shortened his first stint. And even then it was much longer than anybody else's, you know, the, of the, the immediate chasers. Uh, that you just had a big tyre advantage because of the way the car works. Yeah, it's just one of those things, I guess, when uh, Leclerc and Ferrari flattered to the sea, but at least made it a bit interesting on the first lap. But Scott, obviously, Mercedes took second in the championship from Ferrari by three points, but that was in doubt right to the end with Leclerc trying to help Perez to build a five-second gap over uh, Russell in order to ensure Perez finished third. That was all because of Perez's clash with Norris. So what do you make of that incident and the stewards' decision? Um, I didn't think it merited a five-second penalty, because just partly because I think we've talked about this a few times now, that maybe in slightly different circumstances, but we have a situation, don't we, where like the consequences aren't factored in really into the decision. You, you, you punish the offence. And in this case, the stewards felt that Perez had basically dive-bombed Russell and hit him, missed the apex of the corner, hit him, forced him off. I've no real issue with Perez being deemed to be the kind of the more guilty party in that incident. But Lando cut the track as a result of that collision and stayed ahead. Perez didn't get past him there. Perez had to overtake him again. And as Checo said afterwards, if anything, that helped Lando because he stayed ahead and he pulled a little bit, he might have even pulled a little bit clear. I just felt in that situation it was kind of a bit of no harm no foul I don't see why that needed to be met with a five second penalty and I know that this shouldn't factor into it because they definitely shouldn't make a decision based on whether or not it influences the championship outcome but that penalty has ultimately decided that fight for P2 in the championship because I'm pretty sure Ferrari would have got it on count back right if they'd been level on points and the number of points that Russell gained because of that Perez penalty was three he got 15 points instead of 12 so that penalty's decided P2 hasn't it yeah, yeah, it was a significant one. Ultimately, the way Russell raced as well was influenced by that um, in, in the final stages. But yeah, it, it certainly made a difference. And obviously, Mark Perez got himself in a little bit of trouble with the stewards for questioning their suitability over the radio. Mm. What did you make of that? That was almost more interesting than the fact he got the penalty, the fact he was hauled up for yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit overbearing, isn't it? It's, it's a bit heavy-handed. It's it's a sport. You've got competitive sporting frustrations. You know, it's like a footballer complaining about the referee. You know, yeah, you you can get in in into trouble for that. But oh God, it's yeah. I I just thought it was all a bit unnecessary, really. But it's not. But it's not quite like complaining about the referee because if that if that's happened, it's because they've either done it on the field of play to the referee's face or they've done it in a media interview afterwards Perez did neither of those things yeah that's true he, Perez he, was doing it over the team radio I think that's the common question and it wasn't question. broadcast was it I don't think so but even if it was I didn't hear it if, 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 I don't think it was broadcast which means it was in effect private. I mean it's open you can access it through F1 TV or whatever you will be able to hear that eventually if it was broadcast then your issue is kind of with F1 TV direction isn't it mm. Not, I, I have a little 
bit of an issue of team radio messages being used to haul a driver over the coals, to be honest. I'm not entirely sure. I, it's not that what happens on team radio stays on team radio. I'm not going all Fernando Alonso here and saying, those are private conversations. Why are we listening in? But I have an issue with a driver getting a formal warning for something he said over the team radio. I don't think that's really in the, not in the spirit of competition, but in the spirit of what Mark was talking about, you know, heat at the moment, these are athletes, they're competing. He was very, very annoyed. Like, just let it go. It doesn't need to be reacted to like that. Do you want to connect it to the fact that the stewards also took a dim view on the language used by Toto Wolfer and Fred Vasseur in Las Vegas? This was obviously dealt with this weekend when they were summons. What do you make of that, Mark? Bad language. Yeah, I wonder what Mark, well, I'm going to guess from Mark's body language now what he makes of this. He clearly <laughs> takes it very seriously. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I really, it, I mean, it, it can only be so, some sort of um, power play, in, uh, you know, unless it, unless we're going to be, um, you know, all all sort of uh, whiter than white um, in how we express ourselves, and uh, we take all spontaneity out of or spontaneity out of our interactions with each other. It's just. Uh, I, I don't even know where to start. It's just laughable. I, I would say that the the sort of only real, if you strip it down to the basics, the only logical takeaways you can have from those two separate things are one, you can't swear in an FAA press conference because there's a chance that children might be listening at 6am in Europe to a team principals press conference, which to me is, I mean, I, I was a massive motorsport fan from an early age. I don't think I'm tuning in to team principals press conferences well, at that out, time. Eh? Even uh, yeah, because of the delay. You could bleep it out or you can even, and also remove it from the transcript that gets published and, and, and all of that. So I don't really understand that. That's the only takeaway I see there. It just seems overly harsh. And this one here, like what's your takeaway here that, that, that something that can also, you know, you can also eradicate messages on the, not just on the broadcast, but you can also mute the radio you have that that power does exist it has been used i think very infrequently but it has been used so what's our takeaway there that if you say anything in the heat of the moment that questions the quality of the steward in which i, I actually think is a valid thing for drivers to be able to do for drivers and, and team personnel you have to be able to critique otherwise what are we we're living are we operating in a complete dictatorship where you where the the, the official's word is absolute and their ability is absolutely beyond question because that's not really how you improve things is it yeah it did all feel a little bit like a marker being laid down for for the future i mean ultimately there was the recognition with Perez that they can disagree, but questioning how effective the stewards Personal were. Personal insults. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was, I guess, the distinction they made there. But yeah, I'd agree it's all a little bit heavy-handed and uh, unnecessary, really. But yeah, I think that perhaps does reflect a, a, a switch in mindset, shall we say. I do think also, I wonder if it might have been handled ever so slightly differently if it wasn't the final race of the season, because the stewards did know that normally this would be referred to the panel at the next race, but that couldn't happen because it was a season finale. And I wonder if that was the case, if there was another Grand Prix, maybe this could have been handled off book. You know, it could have just been dealt with with a little bit of a, a, a chat or someone yeah. speaking to someone else. But, but this was the only way to deal with it, make sure it was definitely dealt with before the season ended, was actually just to go official and put it in it as a stewards matter. I, I might be being a bit generous there, but I think felt it was important to stress that that wasn't acknowledged as part of a factor in all of this. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to, uh, to mention. Mark, a question from the Race Members Club from Sean Murphy on that shenanigans at the end when Leclerc was trying to help Perez beat uh, beat Russell. The question is, do you think that Leclerc would have been unsporting to back up Russell on the last lap? Perez did something similar to Hamilton in 2021 and was widely praised for it. I think that's um, down to the individual's own, how he feels about it within himself. I think, you know, he, he, did, he did part of it by allowing Perez through. Was he then prepared to completely mess mess up Russell's race? He obviously drew the line at that point. Yes, he, he had to. He was trying to keep himself within, um, the, the, you know, um, less than five seconds of Perez, whilst also trying to take George more than um, five seconds behind. But I just don't think he was um, his personal call of where to draw the line was that he wasn't prepared to, to do this, the second part. And I, I think that's fine. And I think uh, what Perez did um, for his team um, two years ago was also fine. 
Um, but it's, it's, it's a personal decision, and that's just where they each drew those lines. And it's based on what's at stake, right? Because ultimately, yeah. P2 in the championship, I think you do have, I, I do think you have to draw the line in a different place. If the world championship's mm-hmm. on the line for yourself or for your teammate, yeah. I totally get why you might go, actually, do you know what? I'm willing to push this a bit further. It's like if you're trying to win a race versus trying to finish fifth instead of sixth, my suspicion is that you're going to crowd someone to the edge of the track while defending a little bit more aggressively if a win's on the line than if you're fighting over a more menial position. Yeah, Mercedes team principal Toto Wolff did praise Leclerc for being very sporting in the way he did that. He said he could have just parked somewhere towards the end of the lap and because it'd be quite easy to cost someone a fair bit of time here through the twisty bits, but yeah. Leclerc didn't do it. And obviously Wolff had said that was sporting because it was to their benefit. His, counterpart, his counterpart Ferrari, Fred Vasseur, did point out that also there was a matter of trying to judge how you make sure that uh, Russell's five seconds behind, but you're not, is yeah, a little bit exactly. too far. So yeah. there was also that element, that yeah. competitive element of Leclerc could very easily have got that wrong and screwed himself. So mm-hmm. I'm sure Leclerc acted in just an interest of fairness, as Mark said, drew the line. But Vasseur was also keen to point out that there was probably a bit of common sense application there too. It was quite a narrow window in terms of yeah. the time they had to play, but yeah, it was very, doable, but very, very, very uh, uh, tricky. But Scott, does finishing second really matter for Mercedes, given it is to coin a phrase, first of the losers? Um, I think it does from a point of view of ultimately they they all, they all everyone except Red Bull knew from Bahrain or even from Bahrain testing, they're probably fighting over second place this season. And when that's the case, like that's your ultimate goal. And they've had each had their problems and setbacks through the year some stuff hasn't worked as well as they'd, they, they'd hoped and I think once you get to the end of a season like that you want to have something to show for it and they have proven just by the narrowest of margins that they've done a better job than Ferrari and they're a better team than Ferrari that's what the championship standing state say I, I said I asked that of Carlos Sainz I said okay you've had specific circumstances here Sainz was removed from the picture so it was always a you know, a one-car fight against Mercedes for for Ferrari, but the standings are created over 22 races, not just one. And Sainz said, "Yeah, I think the championship order is is fair. Ultimately, like you can point to all kinds of points lost, but they were lost for a reason on both team sides. So I think it, I think it does matter. I was quite amused because um, I was in Vasseur's media session after the race, and he was it was put to him that Toto had said, you know, oh well." P2 is good for the prize money, which we shouldn't underestimate. Um, but, you know, P3 is better for you because you get more wind tunnel time and CFD work. And uh, Vassil had a big smile on his face and said, if Toto really wants the extra um, wind tunnel time and CFD work, then he could always protest um, the, 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 the Perez penalty and have the positions reversed. <laughs> yeah, Toto Wolf kind of characterised the extra aero testing for finishing third as a consolation prize and I think he was happy with the uh, the fact they had second and of course prestige it's and money isn't it yeah prestige and money it's competition you always want to finish as high as you can plus it also should impact the bonuses actually for the staff yeah. as well so it really matters to, to the team so yeah it, it was significant and, and teams will always do better that one step in terms of CFD and, and, and wind tunnel testing is not that significant it's not a bad thing to have but yeah consolation prize is a good way to do it Mark, Carlos Sainz had a tough weekend. Why was he struggling so much? And can you explain the two-stop strategy that yielded that fairly dreadful 18th place? Yes. It all... Um, well, take that bit first. Um, it wasn't supposed to be a two-stop strategy. It was supposed to be a one-stop and he was going to switch to the mediums. But the hards wore out so fast that he stopped with 30... He had to stop with 35 laps still to go and that was way beyond the range of the medium. So he had to put another set of hards on and thereby for the two compound stipulation, he had to make a second stop late in the race to get back on, to get the mediums on for the first time. And that took him out of the points, but he he was only in ninth place even before then. So, um, yeah, it all began to go wrong, of course, with that um, heavy crash in FP2, where the car just bottomed out over the bump at turn three. Um, he really just didn't seem to get his confidence back after that. It was a big crash. Um, they ground the bump out that night, and it, was, it wasn't an issue for the rest of the weekend, but he just didn't have the confidence in the car. You could see going in, in, on board, he was just... He, the, the entry speeds just weren't there. He wasn't. He wasn't able to commit, and the tire, the, the tires being as they are, you have to get past a certain threshold for them really to begin work. And he never, he never got there. And then, of course, he was, went out in Q1, and from there, he was running, you know, on the hard tires. Ferrari doesn't really like the hard tires, especially on a heavy fuel load. Running in traffic makes it even worse. They wore out, and it just went 
spiral downhill really from the, from the point of that crash on Friday. Yeah, it really would have needed a safety car to have any chance of salvaging yeah. that. And even then, that was probably a big ask, given the pace. And obviously, speaking of Carlos Sainz, Scott, this weekend was the final of the Race F1 Cup, which is a head-to-head World Cup-style tournament created for a bit of fun on social media by the race for the, the late-season events. Given Max Verstappen has won everything, he wasn't eligible. And our knockout format produced a pretty unexpected final with favourite Carlos Sainz taking on unlikely underdog Pierre Gasly. So... What an epic battle that was. Yeah, it was almost like a race. The, 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 the winner was basically the person who had the least worst Grand Prix, which was, uh, in, a, in its own way, a slightly dramatic and uh, entertaining way for that to be, to, for that to be settled. I, don't, I, think, um, uh, I think it's a real underdog triumph for, 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 for Gasly. And actually, kind of funny that he got it this way, all things considered, because um, obviously, as I think you've pointed out a couple of times recently, Ed, he's actually, in the sort of second half of the season, kicked into gear and had a really good run of form. But um, it really it isn't actually that really good run of form that's won him the race F1 Cup, is it? It's um, just a weird bit of circumstance for other people having a having problems and, and that kind of thing. And he's, he's won it in slightly strange, slightly underwhelming circumstances. But a win's a win. You can only beat what's in front of you. Exactly. And it's a good, fun little thing to have such an unexpected winner. But he knocked out the two Aston Martins. He and Hamilton went through in the group. Then George Russell got knocked out. Then Lando Norris. Then Science in the final. So a good bunch of drivers he's uh, defeated. And there's not really any prize for it for him. But uh, recognition of a job reasonably well done. And obviously he was hobbled in the race with that fuser damage. And not much he could uh, do. And there is a prize for this in the form of a membership to the race. Not for Pierre Gasly, but one for... But for one social media follower who tipped Gasly to win, if indeed there was one, we'll have news of the winner soon in our next podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Let's talk McLaren now, Mark. They sealed fourth in the Constructors' Championship, a fine achievement given how poor a start to the season the team had. Should Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri have done better than fifth and sixth given where they ran early on? No, it was entirely dictated by tyre behaviour and they tried to run at the pace that Leclerc was running at and they opened up the tyres and that's just where they're at. The, the Ferrari and the Merck were better on the tyres around here and that's, that just dictates your pace on it in this sort of race. It's not, it wasn't a flat-out race like... Vegas or Qatar was a race where your you, you race time is determined solely by how well you can get the tyres to last and it was just harder on the front right than uh, the other cars around them. Yeah, sometimes it's as simple as that. And obviously they did actually have to get some points just to hold off Aston Martin who'd inched back into vague contention. But Aston Martin were never really a serious threat for that this weekend, Scott. 
we did have the interesting storyline, Fernando Alonso and his old rival, Lewis Hamilton. They were seventh and ninth respectively. But there was that dramatic moment on track when Alonso was playing games with the DRS detection. So what did you make of all that? Do you think Alonso overstepped the mark? The stewards didn't. No, it's, it's tricky because it's, all, it's almost a little bit of like, when does a when's a brake test a brake test and when isn't it? Because we've seen before, haven't we? You play games before DRS zones. And mm. it's almost like if drivers if drivers do it and pull it off and there's no drama, it's absolutely fine. And it's just good strategic gamesmanship. This was kind of in the, the middle ground, really, because it was like it wasn't yeah. quite pulled off in that way. But it was a lift off test for on the yeah, brake test. I think, yeah, and, and it was. And, and remember, when you lift off in these cars, it's one that, G. That is light braking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like emergency stop on a road car. Yeah. yeah. So it's obviously it was obviously quite quite severe, and you know the way that Fernando sort of moved the car to the right before he did it as well. I don't I don't think he was trying to catch Lewis out in terms of you know like make Lewis take evasive action, which is the purpose of a brake test, isn't it? You yeah. want to make them really get yeah. in the anchors. He was trying to get let him go, and then yeah. you have the DRS for yeah. for the next straight. I, I thought it was quite interesting because Fernando seemed quite um, pleased with himself afterwards and sort of being a bit cheeky and mischievous and saying, "Oh, you know, Lewis has got a lot of experience, but I've got more," and uh, you know, really taking it as some like massive victory. But I don't think it really was because he did stay ahead but it didn't get him it didn't work like he didn't stay ahead because of the reason that doing that should have kept him ahead if that makes sense he it, it wasn't that Lewis blasted past him and Fernando was like aha now it's worked and I've got the DRS and re-overtook him he just stayed ahead so it it, it did keep him ahead but it it wasn't the tactic that he actually deployed. So should he have had anything to be proud of? Oh, he was very proud of it. He but was should just, he have had anything? Well, to be I proud think of? he was just very proud of just being a bit mischievous. He was in proper <laughs> mischievous mood after the race with that, and he said, "Oh well, Lewis should have learned. I was doing that at Canada in 2012, so he's had plenty of time to learn for that." It was proper. He said, "I won then, then I won now, didn't he?" Or yeah, something exactly, like that. exactly. Yeah. So Fernando was just having a bit of uh, a bit of fun with that one. And, End of season uh, banter. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, he's happy. He's had a, a good season, like I said. There's nothing they could have done really about McLaren. The Aston Martin wasn't quick enough uh, this weekend to have finished ahead, let alone overturn, what, the 11 points. Uh, Gap Lance Stroll as well finished 10th. Solid result, wasn't it, Mark? He's had a nice little run to finish the season. Mm. Three consecutive points finishes. Just ending on an even keel, quite important for him, I think. Yeah, and I think the car that, as it's been since that Austin upgrade, is obviously working well for him. And the, the that interim one in between the... Um, Canada upgrade in the the Austin one he, he really didn't get on with and he couldn't drive it the way Alonso was driving it and he did have to adapt yourself to it um, and he just you know it sort of he got into a bit of a spiral of doom really with it and then he, he's bounced back um, full credit to him he, he started the year strongly and he's ended it strongly. He just had a bit of a dip in between. Yeah, the bit that I liked about it was that obviously he couldn't quite do enough to pull himself out of that spiral when um, the car was how it was. He never quite had the sort of ability or adaptability to get on top of that car. But credit to him, when the car came back to him, he was able to then just sort of snap back into it because it could have broken him and yeah. just got could have just carried on all the way to the end of the season. So I think definitely credit where it, where it's due. The fact that he shook that off and did land a few results, especially that Brazil weekend, I, I think it's sort of a bit more like what we saw when he was impressing at, at the start of the season when the car was at its best, but mm. Lance was at his weakest in terms of you know physical press and that injury, kind of thing because yeah. of the wrist injury and the lack of pre-season testing so yeah I don't, I don't think there's um, much for him to, to to worry about I mean the qualifying pace hasn't been stunning in the last couple of races after Brazil but the race pace and the, the actual performance on Sundays has been sort of typically feisty and actually quite competitive. And speaking of Hamilton, he was ninth, Mark. George Russell was third. Russell comfortably the stronger Mercedes driver mm. this weekend. Lewis very downbeat about the Just, whole thing. What do you make of the gap between the two? Because it's a pretty big performance yeah, gap. Yeah, it was big. And I think um, it, there was an element of the the, the, the tight, like we talked about with Sainz, you're just not getting it past that threshold and not having the confidence in the car because it hasn't got the grip, which in turn means you haven't got the tyre temperature. There's a bit of that going on. Um, but I just didn't get the feeling from Lewis this weekend that he was he's really... He was really up for it. Yeah, I think um, had the car been quick, yes, that would have switched him on. But I, I, I think after the season that we've had, it's just that he's had. It's just I get the impression it's just worn him down. And when you, you know, presented with a situation like this in this last race that doesn't really mean anything for him, and the cars just yet again this car that he really doesn't like that he tries to like, um, yet again not cooperating. I think he's just thought. Oh, 
I can't be bothered. Uh, it did, really did come across that way. Again, just a credit where it's due. The one thing I did like is he was fighting to the very end, didn't he? Sent yep. out Sonoda on the last lap. Didn't quite pull it off, but yeah. at least he at least he wasn't. At least he didn't. I don't think you could. Accuse, no one could accuse him of phoning it in. It's just as uh, as Mark said, there was just that mm. that kind of mentality and that body yeah. language was. You know, when he was in the car, he was trying, but out of it, he just looked completely yeah. defeated and, and, and it, fed it, up. <laughs> also, um, he, he did have a brake problem after. Uh, after he made contact with Gasly early in the race, the the the, the way that the um, the end plate was damaged on the front wing meant the air wasn't get, getting directed into the brake duct on that side. So he had overheating brakes, and that's um, that was a contributing factor to him running wider as he was trying to take Sonoda on the last lap. Yeah, and uh, ultimately very pleased to be shot of the Mercedes W14. I think yeah. pretty much. I think he's probably doing the tire test, isn't he? I think both. Drivers are doing it on Tuesday, but that'll be the last. Put uh, that car out to pasture. <laughs> exactly. Well, they talked about hiding last year's one in the museum. Although I think Toto Wolff then did say, oh, then we'll put it front and centre so we don't forget. But so, We have to put two there now. Well, exactly. They've got two uh, disappointing cars. So, <laughs> so, yeah. we, so we still don't forget. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think they're going to forget this season for a good while. And we mentioned Yuki Tsunoda there, who had that last lap battle with Hamilton Mark. Great finish to the season. Six on the grid. Wasn't enough to... Nick's seventh in the Constructors' Championship, despite the fact he got eighth in the race. How strong was his drive? It was a great drive, um, and he qualified well, and he, he drove really well. And, uh, you know, the two, the, the one stop has been questioned because everybody around them was, did the two stop. But, I, you know, I, I get the logic. They had behind them, um, they had Alonso behind them, they had... Uh, Hamilton and Perez. Hamilton and Perez behind them. So, you know, the, he needed to finish sixth. And they probably weren't going to do it. You know, looking at it from the perspective before the race, you, you don't know that Hamilton's going to have a really bad race, and et cetera, et cetera. But you would think, well, I'm not going to finish sixth with those three behind me when I'm starting sixth. So the only way to get around that might be to do a different strategy to them. And so if everybody's two-stop and we'll one-stop, I get the logic of it. But it, it almost worked. He was running sixth until quite late in the race. He just didn't have the pace to hold off the two-stopping Piastri and Alonso. I give um, Sonoda um, props as well for something he said after the race because I did say to him, you know, he came came so close as from from the, from the team side, and I remember him after Mexico and Brazil, he was really annoyed at himself for the missed opportunities he's had there. And if you give him, if you give AlphaTauri the points that Yuki should have scored in Mexico and maybe could have scored in Brazil without the spin that he had in that or the half spin that he had in that race, you know, that's kind of the difference in the battle. So I sort of said to him, like, you know, is there any regrets there, or are you more kind of proud that you actually, you know, got the team? that close and he and he said you know yeah obviously like missed opportunities you know it was his biggest mistake of the season in, in, in Mexico but on balance you know he's proud of himself for for getting getting into that position delivering the results that he has in these last few weekends obviously Vegas was terrible for the entire team so not really that many regrets and, and in hindsight I think that's fair I think it would be a little bit harsh you you know honestly speaking that mistake in Mexico if you want to if you want to pick one thing if he doesn't make that mistake in Mexico AlphaTauri finished seventh in the championship, but you can pick out for every single driver, with the exception of Max Verstappen, every, uh, moments through the season where if they do something different, you can isolate that as the one time, one incident that then creates a different championship result at the end. You know, look at that gap between Ferrari and Mercedes in the championship, for example. I, I think it would be very, very uncharitable to say that you know Yuki's cost AlphaTauri seventh in, in, in the championship. It, he has stepped up at his game this season towards the end of the year when the car's been more competitive. He's done a really good job to consistently fight for points and score points, more so than Daniel Ricciardo has. I think he's, up, I think he's, he's, um, he's overshadowed Ricciardo in these last yeah, few yeah. races with the exception of, of that Mexico weekend. So all, all credit to, to Sonoda. If he'd done an absolutely perfect job, yes, I think he could have got Alfa Tauri seventh in the championship, but he's also responsible for them getting as close as they did. Yeah, a good season for Yuki Tsunoda. I think he can be quite pleased with that, and it's good for him to finish on a, a high, I think. That's certainly uh, very well merited. But Williams ended up with seventh in the, in the championship. How big an achievement is that, Mark? Because the Williams hasn't been a super quick car, and obviously Alex Albon scored 27 mm. of their 28 points. It was yeah. a car that you had to really thread the needle on a weekend to Absolutely. get points with. Yeah, I think it's probably the, the ninth quickest car and the finished seventh in the Constructors' Championship and Albon must take an, an awful lot of credit for that. But the race team also, it, it, it's 
um, very shrewdly identified what it needs to do at each individual circuit and what approach is going to pay off. And I'm thinking particularly races like Zandvoort, where they understood that the um, the cool track presented a, a sort of unique opportunity and they really, really nailed it. Um, but Alban, it would be so easy to, when you, when it's so important to score the points when they're there on the table, that you've got to get every single one of them. Um, it would have been easy to, you know, made some critical pressure errors and he, he didn't, he just delivers. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it's... It's another. It's not a massive step, but it's another definite step on the on the Williams recovery trajectory. Um, you know, seventh is a flattering position regarding their pace, but it, it, it it's not um, it's not a fluky seventh. It's, it's there on merit. And where, when was that car last really upgraded? Was it Canada? That was the that was the big upgrade. Yeah, they, they they had a few bits at Silverstone. So yeah, they were really focusing on next year's car. And Alex Albon said that after the race that you know we that's the strategy we took, mm. and seventh was the best possible result they could have had. So that's really good. And also seventh doesn't sound like much, but as you said, Mark ninth fastest car. That's a twenty million ish difference. We don't know until the final revenues are sorted. Yeah, in prize money, could easily finish tenth in that car. Yeah. That's a thirty million difference yeah. for a team like Williams. That's really, really important. And hats off to Alex Albon. I did ask him at the end uh, of the race how proud he was of his personal contribution to that, and he said, "Well, I don't really like to talk myself up too much, but yeah, I'm I'm really pleased with with what I've done. I think it's his best season in Formula One. I think we'd all agree with that. So he's done a really good job for that team. Comfortably the standout driver in the back part of the grid I think it's fair to say despite how impressed we said we were with with Sonoda I think Alvin's been really really strong this year hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner luckily Armorall America's most trusted auto appearance brand has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine plus now through May 31st we'll give you five dollars for every 20 you spend on Armorall products that means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the last time this season, we'll be taking questions from the Race Members Club. Thanks very much to everyone who has supported us this year and kept us supplied with questions. It's been a great part of our Race Review podcasts. Inevitably, a fair few questions that have an eye on 2014. Let's see how many we can get through. Scott, question from Lachlan Babbage first. It says, now we've experienced the longest season ever. Can we really make the case for adding more races? Will expanding the calendar bring about the risk of burning out teams, fans and even drivers? I agree with the second point completely. It's one of the things I've said earlier in this weekend. And you kind of feel like, well, we're we're all feeling like I said at the top of this podcast. There's just been the element of kind of we've we've gone a little bit. I feel like we've gone one or two races too far this season, really, because of the season that we've sat through with the dominance and the and and, and whatnot. It's been an even more extreme version of what we often sat through with the in the Mercedes Hamilton years. And next year we're going to be in this position again, having sat through two full. Grand Prix weekends more so the season has to be more competitive to justify the bloated calendar you have to be giving people something actually interesting to watch and and that has been the case a lot of the time but but in terms of a championship narrative it's been missing and there just isn't enough variety race to race weekend to weekend I really hope that changes for 2024 otherwise I think F1 can have a really rude awakening in terms of the the the, the challenges that come with expanding the calendar to 24. Next question, Mark, comes from Jack Aitken, not the one-time F1 racer, but the Australian Race Members Club member. It says, F1 recently introduced maximum qualifying lap time. It seems like a good safety improvement. However, this now also seems to have just moved the qualifying hijinks and shenanigans into the pit lane and pit exit instead. What's the solution for 2024? 
I don't think there is one. I think it's one of those things where you tie yourself in knots by coming up with a solution to a problem that you've just created, and thereby you create another problem, and you then solve that one, and it creates an and it's an ever-decreasing sort of space. I think you take away all those things, and you revert to how it was, and just let everybody find their own space. The solutions just get better ties, isn't it? Well, that'll also make it, that, yeah, that'll make a big difference. And of course, they banned overtaking the pit exit. But I think whatever happens, I, I think they had to do that because if it, if you'd allowed that, you could have quite easily have had a, a blocked because of the way the, the, yeah, the yeah, tunnel yeah. is configured there. You could have had a blocked pit lane. So yeah, they had to do that. Uh, it was it was great seeing it when it, um, when Max did it. It was uh, very entertaining. But yeah, you, you had to do that really for the you know the the, the, the smooth running of the race. Yeah, it was a sensible move, but whatever happens, it's always moving the problem around, isn't it? Question from Colin Gallagher, I'll take, who said, could Valtteri Bottas and Sauber have done much more in the race? They seem to have much better potential at the start of the weekend. And why was there a clash between F1 and MotoGP all weekend? Well, on the second one, I don't think either really cares about what the other's doing. There's only so many weekends in the year, aren't there? So there will be uh, clashes, but a shame for anyone who wants to watch the final race of both F1 and MotoGP, but title decider in the latter, of course. Now get to Valdry Bottas' sympathy corner. Well, there is a certain amount of sympathy. I, I said to him after the race, well, you had the one stopper, you know what you were doing. You were hoping maybe something would play into your hands. Nothing did, so it was just a, a long afternoon. The car didn't really have the pace in it, but most importantly, it didn't have the consistent pace on the tyres. They were struggling with graining and... There was just nothing really that could be done. They were a little bit more optimistic earlier in the weekend, but yeah, ultimately the, the pace wasn't in the car. The tyres weren't there. It was the same for Joe. Bottas did the one-stopper starting on the hards. Joe did the more orthodox strategy. Neither of them went anywhere. Pointless afternoon, literally, for them. But yeah, there, there was Salvers nothing. 2023 in a nutshell. Exactly, yeah. There was nothing much more they could have done. Scott, a question from Thomas Knight. Can Ferrari take confidence from the last few races? in terms of their race pace and tyre wear because it's been strong compared to McLaren and Mercedes considering their issues earlier in the season? I think they can. I think there's been a massive step if you compare it to their weakest weekends of 2023 and I think they kind of moved past that. I think even in the last sort of six or seven races when they've had races that have been difficult, they've been nowhere near as bad as as before. I think they've made changes to the car if you look at the upgrade that they brought in Japan that on the surface wasn't particularly massive. It wasn't a perform big performance differentiator but the theory is now that that's unlocked a bit of comfortability for especially for Leclerc is sort of taking him to to a new level he's been extraordinary in this sort of final third of the season very very good the rest of the year in general but but none of those anonymous weekends in those this final seven Grand Prix mm -hmm. I think he's been absolutely fan fantastic and I, if you look at the We'll, we'll cover this in a bit more detail I'm sure in in subsequent podcasts as we get into the you know bulkier season reviews but as a general rule, their execution and their performance in the second half of the year was much better than it was in, in the first part. So I, I think this is a very heartening uh, end to the season. And regardless of the fact that they've missed out on second in the championship, I think they can, if they've, if they've really understood their problems and they build a better car next year, I think, I think we'll see a stronger Ferrari start 2024 than we saw at the start of 23. One from Jeremy Husted for you, Mark. In retrospect, how much did Mercedes engine superiority in the early turbo hybrid era potentially hold back their aero development in preparation for the current ground effect era? It, it's a valid theory, but I, I, I wouldn't, be um, so, so certain about it. I think you would need to be in both places simultaneously. To, you know, Red Bull and Mercedes to really get get a, a grasp for how much of that was aero and and how much was power unit. Um, but for sure, they had a massive uh, power unit advantage in the first year of the hybrid formula. Uh, they retained a decent advantage for the next two years, but. Subsequently, you know, they, they won titles with an engine that was only as good as everybody else's. Um, Red Bull were at a disadvantage in the Renault phase, uh, the Honda. The Honda phase come on just as Merck was struggling a little bit with the, um, the, the, the regulation tweak. So, yeah, it, it, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's as straightforward as 
Red Bull was always superior with aerodynamics and Mercedes was always superior with power unit. I don't think that it, it's as simple as that. They also, ultimately, they won, they kept winning titles through aero rule changes as well. You know, they did a yeah. great job at the start of the 17 yeah. rules. They did it as well when the rules changed at you know, the front end of the car in particular for 19. You know, they got stitched up, didn't they, with that 20 to 21 change, yeah. that sequence changes, and that car was still nearly good enough to, to win the championship. I think it's more the... It feels a lot more like a, the specific ground effect philosophy rather than a sort of wider aero problem. It's understanding this specific rule set that has caught them out. They clearly haven't done a good job, good enough job with it. But I, yeah, I, I, I agree with Mark. I think that theory is kind of valid, but there are parts of it that fall down if you do examine how, you know, the circumstances in which they won some of their titles. Yeah, and a very new car for Mercedes next year. Toto Wolf, we were there earlier. Mark was talking about that after race, all new concept, all new car. So. That's what they're pinning their hopes on. Next year, a question I'll take now from Christopher Parry. He says, looking back on the season and ahead to 2024, which team behind Red Bull will be the happiest with its 2023 and who is best placed to mount a challenge to the champions next year? Happiest has to be McLaren, I think, given where they were and the progress they've made. Best place to mount a challenge. I think probably I will say Mercedes simply because I think their recent history shades it. If I was looking completely without that context... I just might, on 23, I might say I might say Ferrari, just... Not McLaren. McLaren. Well, McLaren are the wild card. There's, there's a few things with that car that they still need to sort. Some capriciousness, that knife-edge quality. If they can do that, they could be very, very good. So McLaren are the wild card. But yeah, the most likely, you, you just have to kind of lean towards Mercedes. But it's much of a muchness in that group. And yeah, I wouldn't be betting against Red Bull, uh, unfortunately. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. Scott, question from Thomas Knights. Was this another race that just summed up Hass's season, a car in Q3, then a Sunday where you could have forgotten both cars in the race? And how much confidence do you have that they can get on top of their issues from this season? Yes, the quintessential Haas 2023 weekend, wasn't it? The, the massive Nico Hulkenberg overachievement in qualifying, Kevin Magnussen struggling, then both cars ending up occupying similar real estate during the Grand Prix at the back of the grid. Um, I thought it was obviously exaggerated, but I was incredibly amused by uh, Kevin Magnussen having to make whatever it was, like a lap eight pit stop or something like that that i was like oh god it might have even been earlier i was thinking if, oh, if this is indicative of uh, if this is indicative of where they're at with time management at this race because it's so bad here they're on like a 10 stop strategy this isn't going to go well at all so yeah it was um it was uh, i'm a bit worried about uh, where they're going to be for for next year just purely because i know that they've got some big changes that they need to make and are going to make and it could be that the lack of progress that we saw from them this year was a result of them just you know trying to layer on some aerodynamic stuff onto a fundamentally flawed base and then it didn't matter what you kind of put on top of that it was just never going to work so that's what they're pinning their hopes on but the fact is they haven't made progress they spent ages trying to develop a car in the first part of the year never brought any real updates because they didn't really find any time in the wind tunnel then you get to the end of the season they bring a whole new sort of aerodynamic concept obviously again on top of that underlying those underlying issues doesn't really make much of a difference either Nico Hulkenberg's been slagging the team off for its development for the last two or three weeks. Magnussen's been a bit more reserved. So it's just a bit it's a bit all over the place at the moment. I think they need the winter off, just a little bit of out of the spotlight, focused, get your head down, try and do a good job and see where you are come Bahrain. But really do need this team to end its uh, slightly problematic um, tendency to have quite a quick car, but one that can't race very well. Question for you, Mark, or a challenge even from Simon Townend, who said, give me some hope that next year will be more of a battle at the front. Let's go glass half full. Perez version three, Ferrari know where they went wrong. Mercedes finally understand these regulations and McLaren have another super upgrade up their sleeve. Yes, all those things are going to happen. Um, yes. All those things are going to happen and Red Bull's going to trip over itself with them by being too clever by half. So um, it's going to be an epic season. Excellent. Yeah, good commitment to that. That's good confidence-inducing stuff there from Mark. Question from Gareth Jenkins. Would a two-stop race have worked better for Yuki? It was great to see him lead, but the car had pace and slightly better strategy. Could have got him slightly higher up the order at the end of the race. Was this a missed opportunity? Well, really just building on what Mark said earlier, I think the best result they could have possibly got on a two-stop would have been seventh, because I think Perez would have got them, whatever happened. So... They might have had a fractionally better race, but it wouldn't have been like, okay, maybe if one other car had retired. Yeah, so a fractional missed opportunity, but it wouldn't have made the difference for seventh in the championship, I don't believe. It's got a question from Shane Moss. 
How would you convince armchair watchers of the sport to continue watching and encourage new ones to watch with how Max and Red Bull have totally dominated? You could refer them just to Mark's answer, but <laughs> you can have a go now. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I always believe this. I just think it's fascinating to watch uh, sports people and teams operating at, at their peak, like Red Bull and Max Verstappen have done. So that that is worth tuning in for because there's always something to watch behind that. So you can appreciate the brilliance at the front and there's always something to watch behind that. So that's kind of the first point. The second point is the beauty of sport is you don't know. You know, I, I know we, we're kind of uh, joking in, in response to the to the previous question. Well, why can't all of that happen? You know, why, why can't any element of it happen, even to a small degree? And then you know, we're all going to be absolutely fascinated to see the car launches next year. We're going to be fascinated to tune in for testing and then the opening race. And even if the opening race is a little bit disappointing, it's the hope that will kill us and we will just keep watching keep watching thinking that each individual weekend might have a different narrative maybe the season will will, will come alive that's the beauty of sport is that, that things can change and even in the most in the if you want to call it the, you know the, the the darkest timeline of absolute dominance from one entity or one individual there is always a possibility that something different will happen that is the beauty of sport and that is why people should tune in and watch and nothing is forever either that's a simple fact even if the dominance continues there, there will come a moment where it stops diamonds are forever uh, no yes. they're not and no. well well depends whether you believe uh, well, the rights of the James Bond well, I was uh, going to say I've been lied to both films yeah, and no, books no they're not because yeah, at some point the, the, the sun sort of just engulfs the earth doesn't it and then it all just goes back to its original but that, that's a less catchy chemical. Bond title though isn't it yeah. yeah coming soon James Bond in the heat death of the universe that'll be the uh, <laughs> next one Mark a question for you from Chris Shaw has Charles Leclerc become even more formidable as a driver over the past few months since Singapore he seems even more consistent than ever I think he's got the car that allows him to access his best stuff. He's um, he's been a remarkable performer this year, but um, he's always he's always a remarkable f performer and has been ever since he came in. It's just you know the difference. I think it's misunderstood what what, what the levels of, of drivers a little bit because the car needs to to be able to do the things that a drive that any that a particular driver needs it to. Do for him to be able to access his best stuff or for them to be able to access their best stuff. Um, and, you know, we saw at the beginning of last year when Max Verstappen didn't have a significant advantage over Sergio Perez because the the, the understeering trait of the car just put a sort of false ceiling on, on Verstappen. That didn't mean that extraordinary ability wasn't still there. It just meant he didn't get access to it. And I think that's what you see sometimes. And, and I think that's what we saw with Leclerc in that phase of the season where they'd put a false understeer into the car to, to compensate for the um, the snappy rear end. And uh, once they cured the, the snappy rear, or tamed it at least with the um, the Suzuka floor, then he was able to get access to his best stuff again. What he's doing in the last few races is basically the inverse of what we saw from Hamilton this yeah. weekend, isn't it? It's yeah. exactly the same. You see Hamilton completely contained by a car that is just not quite responding the way he wants it to and something weird's happening, he doesn't like it and therefore it just sort of means he almost shrinks within himself slightly. Hamilton is still the seven-time world champion who was on pole position earlier this season. It's just you don't have the car, you don't have the car. If you don't have the feeling, you don't have the feeling. Question for me from Liam Robertson. Is Lando Norris starting to show a pattern of choking when it matters? His sliding qualifying adds to yet another crucial mistake when it mattered. I think a pattern of choking when it matters is probably going a little bit far, but there have been errors in qualifying, a few too many, a few too many of a similar type. It's very, very difficult to untangle how much of that is Norris, how much of that is the fact this is a tricky car, the McLaren. How much is the pressure exerted by Oscar Piastri? But that's something I'm going to be looking to see him doing more consistently next year. But equally, pretty much whenever he's done that, he's then raced very well. He was stronger than Piastri in the race today. He had a good race today. Obviously, he dropped behind Russell off the podium because of uh, the, the slightly s slow stop. But I think choking when it matters probably isn't right. But it's those qualifying laps and whether he's able just to judge what going 99.9% or 100% is and where's overstepping just want to see him improving a little bit I don't think he just loses the ability to drive and just uh, that, that that hurts him but I think when there's an opportunity maybe just getting a bit grabby or whatever drivers have to go through that process he's experienced but not super experienced so he'll learn from that but I'm interested to see I want him to see him eliminate that from his game and he needs to because if he's going to be in a championship fight that could 
hurt him. Scott, a question from JK. Can any light be shed on the future of Logan Sargent at Williams? James Val seems very reluctant to take a strong position either way. And if he is out of the door, who are the candidates to replace him? Yeah, I was um, I was wondering if uh, you know if he closed out the season with you know they were in a great position, weren't they, on the grid in Vegas, and then um, there were points this weekend where he was looking so fast and genuinely like not far off Alex Albon again at all, and you're thinking this is a formality. They just they'll see the season out maybe and announce him pretty soon. Maybe that will happen. Maybe I'll. Um, I don't think I'll have quite like the moment I had after the Hungarian Grand Prix last year where I made a declaration about Fernando Alonso and about 12 hours later looked stupid. But I feel like like Sargent has... He's still... The qualifying here was a good example, right? It's still... Got, you can see the speed is there and yet again not pieced together but two track limits violations yeah it's really irritating really disappointing but I do feel like over the last sort of three or four events there there has just been like a, a I feel like there's been enough of an uptick to sort of see that potential and there's still frustration that it hasn't quite been pieced together but I feel like the, the flashes have got a little bit bigger again towards the end of the year you can see the driver that he's capable of being you can see the driver that he is just starting to to develop into and uh, I think a second season does does make sense if they did decide to jettison him then you, tr- you I think your your number one option has to be to try and see if you can get Liam Lawson on loan from from Red Bull but I don't feel like that's the way Williams is going it does feel like a sergeant renewal was in the offing yeah and the alternatives beyond that there's nothing proven that they can slot uh, in you there. You could try and get Felipe really Drogovic maybe, but or, or you could go capable. for new Formula 2 champion Toa Porsche, but... Vesti, really, Yeah, Fred Vesti as well. He, he, Mick Schumacher's another one in the Yeah, but then none of them are like, none of them make me go, yeah, you absolutely have to get this person in, in the car. Yeah, and I think another year for Logan Sargent, if you can string it together, there's a real driver in there. And obviously, they've then got the, the idea, well, I quite like the idea of them trying to get someone like uh, Andrea Kimi Antonelli. If he goes well on F2 next year, they could get him on loan from Mercedes. So it's convenient to have that. And then they could have Sargent alongside him if Albon moves on, for example. Sorry, I should clarify with something I did just say there. When I say there's no one, you know, they should be busting the gut to get in the car. I mean, outside of Lawson. I, I still believe that Lawson would be a fantastic option yeah. for them, even if he's a stopgap for a better option in, in 25, and then he goes and takes an AlphaTauri seat. But because I, I, what I meant was I don't really think Lawson is a realist, necessarily a realistic option because it feels like he's set on that Red Bull reserve role and Red Bull is set on him having that role and then you look at the other options and none of those ones stand out to me yeah I think that's fair well it would be a loan thing for Lawson anyway and it seems that whatever happens he's probably going to be in an Alpha or whatever it's called a racing bull or whatever in 2025 anyway Mark a final question from Andy how would you rate the Red Bull RB19 versus other dominant cars like the McLaren MP44 and the Ferrari F2002 and F2004 um, it's Performance, its level of performance superiority is nowhere near as big as something like the MP44 or the Williams FW14B. But we're in a formula of racing where you're limited by the tyres much more than was the case in, in those days. And so the way that, it, that they have extracted a dominant car from... Uh, tyre-limited formula, I think, is probably every bit as meritorious as, as those earlier dominant cars, even though on a stopwatch, especially in qualifying, it's nowhere near as dominant. But, you know, it's I think um, it's averaged just um, 0.12 faster than the Ferrari as, as a qualifying car. Um, obviously, its advantage is bigger than that over a race. Um, but you're looking at McLaren with times almost two seconds faster than, you know, the, the the car which would be on the second row of the grid. So it's nothing like that. It's nothing like the um, the Williams or yeah, some of those Ferraris of the early 2000s. And that's a good point to finish on, really, because it's just been an incredible season. 21 out of 22 wins for Red Bull. Max Verstappen, 19 wins. He's only failed to win three races. And yeah, there's more There's more races in a season than there were some years ago. But it's just phenomenal what's been achieved there. Scott, we've got to, we kind of take it for granted so often on these podcasts. Yes, Max Verstappen won and it was quite easy. 
but it is absolutely astonishing what we've witnessed over the past year, frankly, isn't it? Yeah, it is. He has been uh, operating at a fantastic level. Uh, I think it is fair to point out that, obviously, I don't think he wins 19 races if there's even, you know, more pressure in in certain places because I I do think it's possible he's not perfect. It's possible for him to crack under pressure and and start to struggle. Maybe he only wins 15 or 16 races if a few other teams put it together in the right moments. But... I think is I think it is very very harsh to sort of judge him and downgrade him based on that. He's been superb this season. Red Bull have been superb this season. It might not be particularly um, popular to see one team win so so much. And I part of me still would have liked to have seen the one hundred percent perfect season. Just because if you sit through this, I think you at least can see sit through history being made. But we saw that with Max's number of wins. So yeah, just credit where it's due. He's he has been. Absolutely phenomenal. He's rewritten the history books and he's done it in blistering fashion. Yeah, it truly has been a privilege to see. Yeah, it's been repetitive, admittedly, and everyone likes variety, but this is a mighty achievement. And I think we'd be remiss not to hail that. And I'm sure we'll get into Max Verstappen's contribution to that when we look at our driver rankings, our top 10 drivers of the year, which we'll do on a podcast fairly shortly. Well, thanks very much, Scott and Mark, for your insight. Head to therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there. Have a listen to our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories and the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson. Also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, that's almost it for the F1 season. There's a little bit more remaining, which I'm going to stay on for. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the last day of 2023, the young driver test and the tyre test. Can't wait. The Athletic.